We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, and that will be through chapter 9, verse 7. When you get there to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16, look up at me and say, our God is great. great. Amen. Follow along and have your eyes on scripture this morning. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're still in Ecclesiastes. (laughs) We've been in it for quite some time. And so um, we're just going through line by line. And I promise that we will end soon. And and actually, the way that we've journeyed through, um, it's been, this has been the most difficult book for me to teach and preach through. It's not outlinable. It's difficult. He's not methodical like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's like, hey, I got four things I want you to know. Boom, boom, boom. And Solomon sort of throws a t- like a tinter tamper, you know, like, just like a little kid in the floor and wallers and then says, oh, yeah, then this. And then he kind of gets mad and goes on a rant for a little bit. And then he says, oh, yeah, this. And so today, really what's crazy in God's sovereignty, last weekend, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he physically rose from the grave. And as the book of Revelation says, that in his hand, he holds the key to sin, death, and hell, and that he is the Alpha and Omega. And this week, we talk about death. (laughs) It's crazy how this sort of goes back and forth, but I promise you that they both live together, and it's a very important understanding and word for us to understand. And as a way of introduction, this will be helpful. I ran across in my study this week and was reminded of a book that I read a couple of years ago. And the name Eugene Kelly might be familiar to you. Um, He was the CEO of the accounting firm KPMG. And they were at one time the largest accounting firm in the world. And they handled money with small companies like General Electric and Microsoft. So just, just a little bit of money that they had to count and trace and things like that. Um, When he was still a young man, he was playing golf one afternoon with his wife and pulled his golf shot. He he was very good at golf, and so he pulled the golf shot. And then when he got back in the cart, his wife said, your face looks a little droopy, and he was tired. 
and then made a doctor's appointment and went to go see the doctor, and they said, we are scheduling you first thing to go see um, a neurologist. And lo and behold, he had a very aggressive, very rare form of brain cancer. Um, He was diagnosed in May, and Eugene passed away in September of the year that he was diagnosed. One of the things that Eugene was is he was a very disciplined human being. I mean, you can't be a CEO of an accounting firm like that and not be a disciplined person. And he's probably more famous to you because he wrote a New York Times best-selling book called Chasing Daylight. And it's called Chasing Daylight because that was his favorite time to play golf was in the evening with his wife because he said the way the shadows cast over the golf course, it looked like you were chasing daylight. But the subtitle to the book is this how my forthcoming death transformed my life. So he had about three months, and he wanted to die well, what he said in the book. And in a sort of Solemn-esque way, he drops a lot of wisdom and knowledge. But the opening of chapter 2, Eugene says these words, I came to wonder and almost marvel over this question. If how we die is one of the most important decisions we can make, if it's within our control with a diagnosis like mine, then why do people abrogate this responsibility? And in so doing, sacrifice benefits both for themselves and for the ones they leave behind. As for those considering taking the time someday to actually plan their final weeks and months, three words of advice I would give to you. Move it up. If you're 50 and you planned about it when you were 55, move it up. If you are 30 and had planned to think about it in 20 years, move it up. Just as the person with a terminal illness is motivated to a more souped-up schedule, so a person in good health has little motivation to address this situation even one minute before it's too late. You see, that's actually your disadvantage and maybe even your curse. Move it up. And the title of the message today is Move It Up. Because Solomon, just like Eugene Kelly, realized something. And it's something that we've sort of chimed in on all the way through Ecclesiastes. The tagline for the series is learning to live life in reverse. And Solomon, who is more wealthy, more accomplished, more wise, I mean, it's just, he lived the life. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, there's like five or six things that, that I could actually tell you to bank your life on. Because life is a roller coaster and it doesn't matter how much money, how much wisdom, what your last name is or this and that. There are about five or six real realities in the world. And death is one of those. And for us, it's very uncomfortable to talk about this. Um, we, don't li- we get shocked when a celebrity passes away because we, you know, immortalize them. You know, in the f- very first movie when John Wayne passed away, in the movie his character died, you're like... He can't die. He's John Wayne, right? It's, I mean, there's something about us that doesn't like to talk about that and face really what is the ultimate reality. But when you look at the Scriptures, the Scriptures do it for us in a healthy way. And one of the arguments that Solomon makes today, and really the thesis is this, how you deal with the reality of death actually determines your quality of life. 
I mean, almost the way the subtitle was for Eugene Kelly. There was a moment and there was a situation and there was a thrust in his life that the clock started ticking and he was aware of that. And he said being able to deal with that reality forever changed those three months and the way that I was to live. And in the passage today, Solomon does the same thing. He moves it up for us. And he says, listen, if if, if I'm an old man and I'm looking back on my life, there's some time that I wasted, but here's something that's not wasted, and it's comprehending this ultimate reality. But we also have to do a little bit of work. Um, Those of you who've been following along with us in Ecclesiastes, you probably got a little nervous today. Chapter 8, right? There Jason goes. It's how it all starts. Skipping Bible verses, right? I thought we were teaching verse by verse through the thing, all right? Well, Solomon's getting very repetitive towards the end of the book, okay? And in chapter 8, he's talking about rulers and kings and living in an earthly government. And what if it's a bad king? What if it's a good king? This, that, and the other. If you remember, we covered that in chapter 3 about the injustices and the oppression. What do we do about living under law that's sort of broken and the scales of justice are off? And and how do we deal with all those things? And so just to recap and sort of just for you to be able to tweet out chapter 8, this is what Solomon's really saying. He's saying, hey, um, abide by the law while ultimately being loyal to God's laws, okay? So Solomon always gives us wisdom. Like, it's real profound wisdom. It's like this. Don't break the law. Your life will be a lot easier if you don't break the law. It's like fascinating stuff, right? But then he always reminds us that God's laws supersede man's laws, And so, yes, we abide, and yes, we are good citizens, but ultimately, we are loyal to God's laws. And as Christians, newsflash, you don't live in a democratic republic. You live in a monarchy. You got a king. There's no casting votes to elect Jesus as Lord, okay? He did that when the stone was rolled away, all right? And so what Solomon is saying is, hey, don't forget, yes, this is how we live and this is how we are citizens, but be loyal ultimately to God's laws. And then at the end of chapter 8 and then through the rest of chapter 9, he deals with this understanding and the reality of death. And we're going to see really three things. We're going to see the unknowable, the uncontrollable, and the undeniable. And that's sort of how he walks through this with us. And the first thing is this, the unknowable. And at the end of chapter 8, he kind of always comes to a conclusion. Remember, Solomon goes on a rant And then he lands on a conclusion. In verse 16, he said, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It's... What's interesting is we've learned the backstory for Solomon to be the author. And in 1 Kings, he sort of had an Aladdin moment with God. God was like, hey, you're going to be the king of Israel and ask whatever you want and I'll grant it to you. Solomon doesn't ask for money or anything like that, position, power, nothing. He asks for wisdom. And so God gives him wisdom. But Ecclesiastes is almost like his poetic way of saying, cursed be the day that I asked for wisdom, Right? He's like, I find out, I, I, I found out now how the sausage is made, and I don't want to eat it anymore, right? 
Like, I know how life works. I know the brokenness of humanity. And I've pursued all this wisdom. And people have even come to me for advice. And I've given them advice. And I've seen all of this. And I've seen a righteous person. And I've seen an unrighteous person. I've seen a rich person. I've seen a poor person. I've seen a good king. And I've seen a bad king. And at the end of the day, everyone comes to this point of death. And then from there, it's just played out almost in chaos. And in a way, Solomon is saying, the more I found out, listen, not just about life, but also about God, the less I knew about life and the less I knew about the ways of God. Listen, for us in the most technologically advanced, with more information at your fingertips, listen, than any other like anybody in your family generation, any human being on the face of the earth, you live in more technology, more information than anybody that has ever lived. You have access to that. And Solomon still says, man, there's things and ways in life that I will not know the answers to, but he also says to the ways of God. And if you know about the backstory of Solomon's life, sometimes Solomon, I know you're nothing like this. Solomon tried to negotiate with God sometimes. I know you never do that, okay? And Solomon would sometimes say, you know, reveal this or show this, and then I'll do this. Here it is. God, show me the outcome, then I'll step out in obedience. God, show me the result of my obedience before I obey, because you're all-knowing, right? Right? And so show me that, and then I would gladly obey, right? And Solomon's saying, when it comes to the reality of death, and if we're living our life in reverse, there is some struggle in life. And there are things that you will not know. And, and by the way, sometimes people have an argument against God because they can't figure everything out, and there are some aspects that are unknowable. Well, the newsflash is is that because there are aspects of God that are unknowable, it makes him God and not you. That's a dumb argument, okay? So if if I knew everything that he knows, then you would be God, okay? And listen, that should not cause frustration in our life, but rather it should cause almost adoration, as the Scriptures say. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Right? God has never, like on who wants to be a millionaire, had to phone a friend. That's never had to happen. And the Apostle Paul says that should not frustrate you. And if it does frustrate you, it's because you are grasping from some sort of control rather than entrusting yourself to the one who knows. Um, This is a picture of Miss Margaret Cross. She's holding our second-born Andy Grace. And Margaret Cross is a founding member of Westside. As many of you know, it started in her and her husband's basement, this church. And she's been on my heart and mind. This was the very first Easter that Margaret Cross was not in attendance in the history of Westside. So I've just been thinking about her a lot lately. And after Miss Margaret was diagnosed the second time with her health issues, we would, many people went to go visit her. I would always go visit her after the doctor's report so we could sit and we could talk and we could see what's going on. And uh, Dr. Mike Caldwell was her primary care physician. And he was just so great and so gracious and so gentle with her. 
And one day, Miss Margaret went into a doctor's appointment like Miss Margaret does, if you knew Miss Margaret, okay? So she went in with a litany of questions. I mean, she just boom, 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 fired off. And she said, you know, Dr. Mike just sat there. And in a way, what Miss Margaret was doing without saying it was, I want to know the day, the week, and the hour I'm going to die. Can you tell me that? Is it going to be Tuesday? Because if it's Tuesday, i got to do stuff on Monday, okay? Right? I mean, literally, that's what she went in to say to him. And Dr. Mike, in such a gracious way that he is, and him being a believer, he, he grabbed her hand and put it on her lap and put the palm up and, and like, started to trace lines, like, to read her palm. He says, is this what you want me to do? Let me read the future? He says, I can't know that. You can't know that. And then he said, We can't control that. What we can control is your quality of life now. Miss Margaret was 80 plus years of age, and she was still learning that. So don't tell me you have it figured out. There are aspects of our life, listen, here it is. There are some questions that I will not know the answers to. That's what Solomon's saying. And especially when it comes to the reality of this issue. One commentator put it this way. Rather than getting frustrated with all the things we do not know about the world or do not understand about the ways of God, we are invited in to rest content with our own limitations and to worship God for His superior wisdom. That's the moments when we call it feeling small at the ocean, at the base of a mountain range. Nobody stands there and says, man, I'm awesome. You feel small in that moment. And all of those are subtle invitations. When you see a baby born on the the day of marriage, even on a day of death, all of those are invitations by God so you can see your limitations. And to remind you that you are creation. You are not creator. And so how we deal with this determines our quality of life. And you have to understand that there is some aspects of it that are unknowable. Which moves us now as the points build to the uncontrollable. And Solomon now shifts gears in verse 9. But all of this I laid to heart. Those are always important phrases by Solomon. Because he's saying, hey, if you fell asleep during my lecture, wake up, okay? Because now I'm actually going to say something, like I'm going to come to a conclusion here. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. Here it is. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. If I've taught you anything to study the book of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon mentions God, you need to underline it, circle, your ears need to perk up. He's not always laying down the God card. Right? He's examining life almost from a philosophical perspective. He's like saying, hey, let's deal with this, let's deal with this, let's lay all the cards on the table. And then he drives it to a theological point. And he says, all of this is in the hand of God. This is what we understand in theology, the sovereignty of God. Because the psalmist would say, who can stay the hand of God, right? It exhibits his power. Now, we have to be careful because there's a ditch on either side of the road with this, okay? 
So one of them is hyper God created robots, his will, this, that, and it's like, and it's all double this and predetermined that and then this and then that, and that's all over here. And then on this side of the road, it's like man has complete total free will and by God, I chose Jesus. He didn't chose me and I got my free will. And I'm like, yeah, like then will yourself to be eight feet tall. Will your kids to obey you. I knew that one always gets more laughs than the first one, right? Because you're like, that's impossible. Oh, okay. So now our will's a little bit limited. But when it comes, I like how Spurgeon answered it when somebody asked him, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And Spurgeon probably took a puff of a cigar and said, you don't need to reconcile friends. They're not opposed to each other. So stop making the false dichotomy. Here's what Solomon is saying. You have a responsibility, and you do make choices. Many of them, really poor ones. Let's just be honest, okay? Right? Some of them, great, all right? But God is the only one who knows 10, 15, 12, 20 years from now the result of the choice that you made today. That's what he's saying. All of this is in the hand of God. Now, what is the application from that theology to your life? It's this. The first thing is, is we find comfort knowing that nothing is out of control. I don't know what else you have, man. What other understanding do you have? Even though I don't know the answer to the question, the one thing that I know that God has promised is that He is good and whatever He gives me from His hand, whatever He gives me from His hand is good because He is good. And that's the rock that I stand on when a phone call, a text message, or a doctor's report shakes every foundation in my life. The one foundation that I have is the rock of the sovereignty of God. I still have questions, but I believe and I know that He is good. That comforts us to know that nothing is out of control. But listen, it also challenges us. It challenges us for us to know that we are ultimately not in control. And this is a good reminder for us. Listen, we get like an hour and 15 minutes with you on Sunday. I get like 40 minutes, 50 if I'm angry, to talk to you. All week, you've had your own little kingdom. Your work, your schedule, your kids, and you've just been building your own little kingdom. And every once in a while, community group breathes a breath of fresh air. And then God, and you're like, oh yeah. And then we come, and then we gather, and we hear from the word of God, and we sing, and we realize, not my kingdom, not my will, but thine be done. And then we're reminded, and we feel small in those moments. And we see this exhortation all through the scriptures. In the book of James, he says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Remember what we learned about the word vanity? This is like the New Testament version of that. Smoke, right? What Solomon and James would say to us today is, light a match. Go home today, light a match, and then blow it out and watch the smoke dissipate. And that's you, buddy. You're awesome. There it is. James says, why do you think you have that much control? Instead, you ought to say, if... The Lord wills, 
We will live and do this and do that. Have you ever talked to an old timer before and made plans with them? Have you ever heard them drop some knowledge on you? And they say the phrase, Lord willing, if the Lord wills and the creek don't rise, right? That's a little bit of Southeast Missouri wisdom there, right? What are you saying when you say that? If the Lord wills. You're confessing that you're not the Lord. That's almost literally like a practical everyday application. If the Lord wills. That's why Jesus would say where your treasure is is where your heart is. Like if you say that God is at the center of it all, let's balance your checkbook together. Let's sit down. Bring me your calendars. Let's look. How is there a constant rhythm and a base in your life where there is not a separation of sacred and secular, but rather am I involved in everything because I am everything? And Solomon says, listen, when you deal with the reality of death, it changes your quality of life. And you're okay sometimes with the unknowable. And then you understand your place in the uncontrollable. But the last thing is, is the undeniable. This is when he really zeroes in and says, there's a lot that I don't know, but this is what I do know. Verse 2, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who doesn't sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This, verse 3, is an evil that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Death. Right? I've been swearing for a long time. I want to come out with an exclusive line of Christian merchandise. Right? And the front of the t-shirt is going to say, everyone dies. And the back is just going to say, like, West Side or something like that. That's it. There you go. Right? And there's something about the, the uneasiness that we have with this. I mean, listen, you can Botox, you can kale chips it, you can P90X it, you can CrossFit it, you're going to die. That's just a reality. And listen, rather than being fearful of that or being morbid about that, the Scriptures exhort us to deal with it biblically. One pastor wrote this, I have noticed that some people are very uncomfortable at funerals. They are nervous and edgy. They want to get it over quickly and get back home to their living room or whatever. And in observing that phenomenon, I've asked myself what it is about funerals that makes them so nervous. The answer that I've come to is that a funeral is the only event where one can no longer escape this ultimate reality. A a funeral is proof that we are not in control of our lives. This is what makes people uncomfortable and anxious to get back to the comfortable illusion of their life. Now that's par, right on par with what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And he's saying, listen... This is fascinating, right? Any psychologist would tell you this, and this is long before psychology. The best way to deal with your fears is to face them. 
right? Batman did this. Come on, man. Let's learn something from Batman. Why is he Batman? Because he's terrified of bats, okay? That's why it's the whole symbol and everything. And for us to face this, and we're about to get to him. I'm getting excited. I'm about to jump ahead of myself. And when Jesus faced the ultimate reality that nobody escaped it, nobody escaped death, but Jesus rolls out that tomb fresh as a mug and says, hey, I was dead, but I'm now alive. What else do you have to fear? What else do you have to fear in your life? I have dealt with the great equalizer and I have stepped out and I hold it in my hands. So now in light of that, in light of that reality, live your life in reverse. Listen, the resurrection doesn't just conquer death. It makes death work in reverse. That's how powerful Jesus is. Are you not excited? Because I'll preach angry about it, okay? I mean, it's not just this, oh, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, is it true that all sad things will now come untrue? Yes. Yes. And so now we have to face this and deal with this. And Solomon challenges us. He says, don't lie. I know how you're facing the reality by how you're living. And he gives us three examples in the text and then I'm out. He says, here's how you're living life in light of death. Don't tell me you believe this about death. I'm so burdened. I'm so burdened that if we did a Barna study or something like that, that there would be so many more Christians that would want to stay on this earth and watch their grandbabies grow up and be with Jesus. And I'm not saying let's all go be martyrs and all go do this, but I'm saying I want to see his face, man. And if that is the ultimate reality, and if he has beat that, and now everything's working backwards in reverse, and we don't have anything to fear, then how are you living? And the first illustration that he gives us is there's a group of people that are actually trying to escape death in life. It's what he says here. Look in verse 3. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Here it is. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Here's what Solomon's saying. These people are busy all the time. They're really worried about their self-image. They're never going to be transparent. Everybody's at arm's length. And what's true for you is what's true for you. And be happy and do all of this. And they are trying to escape that ultimate reality and that fear probably by throwing themselves back into life. It's a distracted life is what he's saying. That they're living this way trying to escape that. And then the second group of people, they're real happy too. They're just trying to endure it. Look at what Solomon says there in verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. So this person is not dead, they're living. And here it is. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. What? Like, hey, Solomon, I went to public school. I'm going to need some help with that, okay? What does that mean? Okay, like if you've ever been anywhere other than the West, if you've been in the Middle East or Egypt or India or any place like that, dogs are rampant. They're everywhere and they're scavengers and they're sick and they spread diseases and all of that. And and then a lion, hello, right? King of the jungle, man. And what Solomon's saying is he's giving us this in a parable, proverbial form. And he's saying some people are just enduring life. And life has beat them down. And what they stand up and say is, well, I'm not dead. And he says, what what kind of way to live is that? 
Yes, there are some things that we do endure in life, but it's not just endure it and then die. Oh my goodness, Christians need a new schooling on eschatology, man. It's not just about dying or getting sucked up out of the planet and going to be with Jesus and then just enduring this life. But as Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, that heaven's breaking through now in your life. So you're either trying to escape life in this busyness because you're, because you're afraid of that ultimate reality or you're just enduring it and you're saying life is filled with pain and nobody else is going to hurt me anymore and I can endure it and everyone's in arm's length or here's a crazy option, you can enjoy it. And in verse 7 he says this, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. What does that mean? Solomon's saying, listen, when you deal with this ultimate reality, and when you deal with this reality of death, you're confronted with the idea of God. You have to deal with that. And once you've done that, and that determines your quality of life, you can enjoy it. Because it doesn't depend on you anymore. Man, do we really believe when Jesus said that I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly? A joy-filled life that's not dependent upon external circumstances or this, that, and the other. And so listen, as a response, I want to end here. We could continue to go, but I want to end here, and I want to throw these questions up. How are you living life in light of death? Are you escaping it? I mean, seriously. Is it busy? Is it this? The vacation? We got to do that. We got to play. And boom, 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 boom. And you're just full throttle. Because there's a lot of stuff that you are not actually dealing with. Or is it just this enduring, like, life hurts and then you die concept? Because there's good news. Jesus actually dealt with death. And at the tomb of Lazarus, he waited. I mean, waited to do was like dead, dead, dead. So dead, the King James Version says, he stinketh. That's how dead dude was, Right? And then one of the ladies comes up and says, if you'd been here, where were you? Because if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing. There's got to be a death in order to show you what's going to take place. And then he has the audacity to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Everybody said, thinks that she answered that question right. She did not. She thought that that was something that was going to happen in the future, that you are the one coming into the world, and that at some point this will happen. And Jesus is saying, Listen, I'm doing this now how many of you think that God's going to eventually do something in your life at some point but have zero faith that it will happen now today that's the reality of this and that is the power of the resurrection that it doesn't just conquer it but it reverses it and works itself backward so as the band comes and leads us in a time of response and as we come to the table today I really want you to ask yourself where you are in life Are you escaping this? Are you trying to endure this? Or maybe you are just in a beautiful season where you're enjoying this. And maybe not. And maybe there's some things that Jesus wants to walk alongside you with. 
But listen, I can promise you this today, that when we deal with this reality, it changes our very quality of life. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for your word, grateful for thinking about things that really matter. God, we know that when we are there on a deathbed, all of a sudden priorities do change. And the mortgage and the insurance and the vacation and things tend to fade in the background. And there we are confronted with the ultimate reality. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have your way with us today. Today. Now. God, let this concept drop from our minds into our hearts and let us live this now. As Solomon said, go. Go. Today. Enjoy this quality of life today in light of the reality of death. And oh Jesus, we pray to you today knowing that it's not a memorial. Memorials for someone who's dead. But you are alive and you're doing something now. You have come that we may have life and have it abundantly. And we have that because you laid yours down. May we be challenged. May we be convicted. May we be comforted. We pray this in the living name. In the name of Jesus Christ.